0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. (laughs) Good afternoon. And welcome everybody to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. The club can be found on the internet at commonwealthclub.org. My name is Audrey Cooper. I'm the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and I'm happy to be your moderator today for this program on an increasingly relevant, yet also very depressing topic – Fighting a Global Information War with State and Non-State Actors. And there could be no better person to discuss this with us tonight than our guest, Richard Stengel. He was at the center of a new type of war when he entered the Obama administration, fighting disinformation from both ISIS and Russia, among others. His new book, Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation and What We Can Do About It, recounts his efforts in this arena. Rick is among the longest serving Under Secretary of state for public diplomacy and public affairs in American history, serving from 2013 to 2016. While at the State Department, he helped modernize states' communications and led the department's counter disinformation efforts across the globe. He helped create and oversee the Global Engagement Center, the United States' only standalone anti-ISIS messaging entity. He also oversaw the modernization of all embassies' websites and pioneered the use of social media at the department. Before coming to state, Rick was the editor of Time Magazine for seven years. During his tenure, it won Magazine of the Year for the first time, as well as a number of national awards. Rick, welcome to the Commonwealth Club and the Bay Area.
1: Thank you, Audrey. Uh,
0: I, You know, we're a couple of days before Halloween, which I think is, the, this is the perfect <laughs> horror book that you've written for us. It really is a great time to be on a book tour discussing global disinformation, isn't it?
1: Except, as you say, people find it a little bit depressing because when we start talking about the remedies, there's nothing that you can do uh, very quickly to solve it all. Yes that's true well let's now I've depressed everybody you <laughs> might as well go yeah. home
0: uh well, let's talk a little bit first about the role that you had at the State Department. What is the Undersecretary of global diplomacy that's that's a euphemism right
1: so it's the the technical title um and once you go into government, technical titles are very important. the Undersecretary of State for public diplomacy and public affairs so um there are six undersecretaries, I believe, at the State Department. That's just the level below the secretary and the deputy secretary. And public diplomacy is really about America's presentation of itself in the world. It's, um, I used to joke that I was like the chief marketing officer of Brand USA. And the old time discussion of public diplomacy, it used to be called when, when uh, Murrow was the head of it, it was telling America's story. I hated that phrase. Um, because I just thought it sounded like propaganda. And public affairs is the spokespeople, the people, uh, the spokesperson in Washington. Every embassy has a spokesperson. We had hubs in Europe and Asia that have uh, spokespeople. So that's about communications. It's um, so, not really a euphemism. Not anything.
0: a euphemism. So y- you talk a lot about uh, in the book about how... It seems that every problem we have goes back to how we're messaging it. Do you still think that's true? So
1: I, I you know, I got tagged as the messaging guy or the communications guy, and I joked that um, not every problem is a messaging problem, but every problem has to have a message that you that you figure out how to do. And actually, it was it was Murrow who famously said, "If you don't consult me." On the takeoff, don't consult me on the landing or the bad landing. And and I think the Obama administration. Uh, I mean, he the press. You know, started at the top. I mean, he was always very reluctant to kind of talk about how to message things. He was very interested in doing the right thing and and executing policy and 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 governing. He wasn't as interested in messaging about it and. Um, I think as a result, there were times when we, we didn't actually tell the story of what we were doing very well. And, um, you know, and, you know, now we have a president who's only about messaging and not about policy. And um, let's see how that works out. But <laughs> um,
0: so, so it's an interesting job to go into, especially because right before that you were editor of Time. Yes. So you were a journalist. Like, How does a journalist become the ultimate flack for the government. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a part of it. And part of the reason I did the book, and I hope, you know, you, you read it like, like that, which is that, it, it, you know, going into the State Department was like an anthropological experience for a journalist, right? It's like, you know, we've spent our lives being outside the room. Then suddenly you're in the room and like, oh my God, this is the way they do it in the room. And, and I write a lot about how um, clumsy the bureaucracy was at, at the State Department and how that gets in the way of, of people doing things. I used to joke with my conservative friends, you should be in favor of big government because big government prevents things from happening. And, and, and the other thing I realized was how naive or ignorant people in government are about how media operates. I mean is this, and again, it, and, and, and the current occupant has made it even worse, that where people think that that reporters have some Biases that they bring to the office or to, or to their work, and I say well, reporters do have a bias, the bias is to get on the front page, and whether that is goes against their politics or not it doesn 't matter; they want their story there and so people I, I thought people didn 't really get that, and um, so I talked a lot about how journalism worked to people and and I think at the same time, going into government from, from journalism it 's like we also don't completely get how, how government works. And I used to think that, you know, when I was in media, I don't know, I, I, we, we got 80% of it right. And when I was in government, I thought it was probably closer to 60%, right?
0: Oh, that's better than I thought you were yes, going no, to it's, say. Yes, no, it's,
1: it's, I mean, it's still, I mean, and there are people who, um, you know, I have some scenes where the Secretary of State is complaining about the meeting he was in in the White House in the Situation Room the day before. It's like, there it is in the New York Times the next day. That happens to a, with, 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 with very high frequency and very high accuracy, in part because people in government are leaking those details. Now, you, a leak is always sort of weaponized in the sense you have a particular purpose, but they're often extremely accurate and, and good journalists will then talk to a bunch of different people to get the, the, what, what happened. So I, I learned many, many, many things that I probably should have known from reading the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post every day.
0: So when you say you think about 60% of it is right, that's different, I would assume, than, than the idea of fake news in, in your mind.
1: Yes. Yeah, so... so um, Fake news is, you know, we'll do a little glossary for a second. Disinformation is deliberately false information designed to deceive you for a particular strategic purpose. Misinformation is a mistake, you know, which happens to all of us. Fake news is a term I don't even like to use. I think there's a better term, junk news. Because fake news is 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 a term that itself was weaponized because it's 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 what people now people use to anything they disagree with they call fake news even if it's accurate which is what what Trump does. Um, junk news is sort of made up stuff to to deceive you. I mean, I actually think that the, you know, the things that, that websites news websites do now with with sponsored stories at the bottom that look like news that that is genuinely junk news or fake news, and I think it's something that. We can talk about that later, that that journalistic organizations shouldn't do.
0: Okay, we'll get there. So why don't we, while we're on the glossary... Uh let's talk about disinformation and and the actual damage it does to democracy because I think a lot of people say well yeah I saw an article and I I know it was probably made up or it was trying to make me mad but like it didn't change how I voted so therefore it doesn't influence democracy but you make a really compelling case for exactly what damage it is
1: doing Yeah so I I go back to the you know to the framers I mean the the declaration said Governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That was a radical idea in the 18th century. But the consent of the governed was achieved through information, accurate information. You know, Thomas Jefferson said a nation can never be ignorant and free. There's the great uh, Madison quote about a popular government without popular information is a prelude to a tragedy or a farce or both, which is like what we're living in now. So the whole idea of a democracy for the, for the framers is that individuals make their decision based on the information that they get. And, that, and that that's why the First Amendment protects the press. It's the only industry in America that is actually protected. And it's protected because so people can get information. Now, was there disinformation back then? Of course there was. I mean, uh, you know, and you read these hair-raising stuff about stuff that, that newspapers accused people of in the 18th century. But... But there was a sense that people needed to figure out how, how to process that information. I mean, as I say in the book, we don't have a fake news problem. We have a media literacy problem, which is that people can't tell the difference between what's factual and what's not factual. And, and when that happens, that undermines your democracy. I mean, I, I, I'll, I could tra- I trace it up to the current day because so many people vote sometimes based on, on inaccuracies. I mean... Uh, You know, I have a little bit of a riff in the book about um, the kind of wacky moment in the campaign uh, when a gunman went to uh, Comet Pizza in Washington, D.C. because he had read all of this crazy disinformation that Hillary Clinton was operating a child sex trafficking ring out of a family pizzeria. In
0: her spare time.
1: Yes, in her spare time, uh, which she didn't have a lot of. And... um, and, and, and there it's just like, oh, oh, my God. But then I saw a statistic the other day that Pew Research had done at the time that 30% of Americans thought that story had credibility. I mean, how can you have a functioning democracy if a third of potential voters can believe something that's just so... Incredibly wrong-headed and bizarre.
0: So, can you give us
1: uh, this this department
0: that you took over? Can you give us just a brief overview of how it came to be and what its role was when when you came into uh, the job?
1: Um, you know, ironically, um, and this is very esoteric. There's this guy named Joe Biden who's running for president. Joe Heard Bi- of him. Yeah. Joe Biden in 1991. Um, sponsored a bill that broke up something called the U.S. Information Agency, which was created sort of during the Cold War that Edward R. Murrow ran. And part of that, and most of it went back to the State Department. Some of it became something called the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which operates the Voice of America, Radio Free Europe, all of these legacy organizations, which, by the way, still exist and still do a pretty good job and have an $800 million budget, which is not nothing. Yeah. Um, but... But it, you know, to get to the present day, the reason my, this, I, I became involved in this is that underneath me at the State Department was something called the Center for Strategic Counterterrorism Communications. Government has terrible names and terrible acronyms. But it was an entity created by Secretary Clinton to combat a, what was then a revolutionary terrorist group using social media called Al-Qaeda. Uh, because they put a guy on a hillside who spoke directly to camera and then they loaded it up to YouTube. That was revolutionary. But this group which did counter Al Qaeda messaging saw ISIS before other people and became a counter ISIS organization. So that was under me. At the same time as, as ISIS rose up, uh, with that first beheadings in kind of February of 2014, that same couple of weeks, Vladimir Putin Illegally annexed or invaded Crimea, the southern part of of Ukraine, uh, you know, the, the most uh, the greatest violation since since World War II of, of of national boundaries and and taking territory, which was a a catastrophic thing. Um, and at that same time, I started seeing all of this social media and disinformation around it, which I'd never seen before. All, you know, I'd spent my whole life in journalism. It's like, where did all this Russian stuff come from? So, so these two kind of counter-messaging efforts, counter-ISIS messaging and counter-ISIS disinformation and counter-Russian messaging and counter-Russian disinformation, became the focus of my job. And... Um, and that's what I did, really, for the next three years.
0: Well, let's talk about something that's just happened this weekend: the the killing of an ISIS, you know, the the, the head dude, the the Baghdadi. The, the Baghdadi. thank you. Um, what do you, when you're watching that unfold on on the news? Yeah. What do you think about the messaging that's going around about that? Because there's been a lot of criticism, at least on my Twitter feed, that that the president's language that he's using around this will really backfire in a yeah. Yes, in a global sense,
1: and I did. I treated the same thing. I mean, so first of all, it's a very good thing that Abu Bakr Baghdadi was killed. He's he he was the the kind of conceived ISIS, and he was a, responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths. Secondly, it's a tribute to American special operations forces from all the different branches that were in Iraq and Syria, who've done a kind of fantastic job. Um, helping the Kurds, helping the Syrian Democratic Forces. These people are the, are the best of the best. I worked very closely uh, with them. The head of CENTCOM is, was the commander of that, uh, who's retired, I'm blanking on his name, who's just fantastic. So they should get credit for it. Third, it happened despite Donald Trump because Donald Trump wanted to get those guys out of that area. There were only about 1,000 special forces in that area. And then finally... Let's just also recall another time a, a, a foreign despot a terrorist leader was, um, was, was killed by American forces, Osama bin Laden. I remember so many meetings in the White House and elsewhere about how do we message around this? How do we give him a proper Muslim burial so it doesn't alienate 1.6 billion Muslims around the world in terms of how we've treated this, this awful mass murderer? Obviously, there wasn't one iota of this kind of consideration. And what, and what Trump did by spiking the football, which is a kind term for, for what he said of rubbing people's faces in this, is that it alienated the very people that we should be recruiting to our side, i.e. mainstream, moderate Muslims who are disgusted by ISIS and, and, and hate what it has done to people's perceptions of Muslims around the world. And then Trump does this thing about died like a coward. And uh, by the way, he blew himself up. And um, so it's just, it's just, again, it's a very good thing that, that Baghdadi is gone. Um, The way uh, Trump messaged around it undermine some of the benefits.
0: But the, I would say there's probably also a parallel in that when the terrorist organizations put things out on social media, they are celebrating this, what's wrong with the United States saying, hey, we, we got one of yours too. I mean, are, are, the, are the moderate Muslims really going to be swayed one way or another by what Trump says on this?
1: No, but, it, but again, remember ISIS's narrative is the West in general, and America in particular, Hates Sunni Muslims. That there is a continuing 21st century crusade against Muslims by the United States and the West. That's their message. When Trump says that we killed him like a dog and it's whimpering, which is he doesn't even understand what a terrible insult that is to Muslims. Um, that that what that does is well, a Muslim around the world might go, well, yeah, it's a good thing that Baghdadi is is dead, but maybe he was right about this this whole kind of 21st century crusade that's going on, right? I mean, what did George Bush do? What was the first thing he did after 9-11? He went to a mosque, right? Can you imagine this guy going to a mosque? No, no, I think that's pretty unlikely. Um,
0: you know, the, uh, the the Ukraine and Russia have also are nonstop in the news. And you really were on a, a lot of the ground floor decisions that we're now seeing play out with regards to Russia. What did you learn about Putin in specific, but Russian diplomacy in general? And and did that change through the time that you were in the State Department?
1: It really, I got, I got a kind of a concentrated dose of it. Um, I mean, just to talk about Ukraine for a second, because Ukraine is so critical. Ukraine is a country the size of France in Europe. It's a hinge between Russia on the east and Europe on the west. The future of Ukraine is is critical to this idea of democracy. And Ukraine has suffered probably more than any other country um, its size or any size, you know, since in the, in the 20th century. Tens of millions of deaths. Including the forced starvation of 10 million Ukrainians by Stalin in the 30s, uh, called the Holodomor, which is an appalling thing that happened. So, so our policy with Ukraine is: how? Look, you guys are in Europe. Let's kind of want. Let's do more stuff together. You know, ha, ha, hang out with the European Union. You know, Putin's policy is is to is to make Ukraine a failed state so that it leans east towards Russia and not west towards Europe. That was what our whole policy was about. And those demonstrations in Ukraine, in the in the Maidan, in Kiev, in 2014, 2015, you know what they were about? They were about the Yanukovych, the corrupt leader of Ukraine, who was a Putin crony, vetoing legislation that would have brought them closer to the European Union. Which is why it's so ironic, in a sad way, that this guy Sondland was one of the three stooges that was responsible for Ukraine diplomacy. He's ambassador to the EU. The fact is, Ukraine isn't even in the EU. We want them to be. And, and what, what Trump has done with Ukraine is basically confirm Putin's line about the United States. Don't trust them. They don't really care about democracy or human rights or or, or transparency. And that phone call in one fell swoop proved Putin's point about the United States and Ukraine.
0: The, there Which are, is
1: bad for democracy.
0: There, uh, I thought you did a really excellent job of explaining. Putin is a, a a unique politician when you're coming into office because there are several instances where he just bald-faced lies about something and then pretends like he never. said it, which seems very familiar now uh, after the last three years. But this, uh, it it made me wonder, do you think that it was purposeful what he, is this a real strategy or is it just faking your way through it and hoping you get away with things?
1: So, and I think I say this, the book, I mean, the foreign policy wonks, and I don't count myself among them.
0: Uh, (laughs) I hate to tell you, you wrote a book about it, so I think you are.
1: (laughs) Um, A friend of mine said it may not be the best foreign policy book ever written, but it's the funniest foreign policy book (laughs) ever written. Um, So this discussion that foreign policy experts have about Putin is whether he's a chess player or a checkers player. And I actually think he is a checkers player. But compared to the, the current occupant in our country, who's not even a go fish player, he he he. He looks like the greatest chess master in history. They, they try things, and if they work, they do more of them. If they don't work, he, they does, he does less of them. So, so even the invasion of Crimea in, in 2014 was a reaction to the, not only the protests, but, but the Sochi Olympics that didn't go as well as he thought. I mean, I, I don't think there was a long-term strategy. And, and I, I don't talk about this very much, and I barely mention it in the book, but I did meet and spent some time with Putin in 2007 when I was editor of Time, and I made him, I don't boast about this a lot, but I made him Person of the Year for at time in 2007, bringing Russia back or whatever the phrase was. But we interviewed him at his, at his Dasha outside of Moscow. He kept us waiting for five hours. Once the interview started, he, his, he blew his temper like this and it almost ended it. I should have said, I went to see Henry Kissinger before I interviewed Putin, to ask him, you know, he knows Putin well, and Kissinger said, you will be surprised at what little effort he makes to charm you. <laughs> I was surprised. It felt like, you know, when you stand in front of, like, the, the biggest BTU air conditioner that you've ever stood in front of and this cold air is coming at you, that is what it's like to stand in front of Vladimir Putin. There's absolutely no interaction that has any human element that you can ever discern. That's what I thought. So he, um, and he came to power and it was in that interview where he famously said, the greatest tragedy of the 20th century is the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Think how strange that sounds to an American. I mean, it sounds strange to all of us. That's how he sees the world. And so much of his presidency is about trying to put the genie back in the bottle. And, and in fact, his whole rise to power is very similar to Trump's in the sense of uh, what I call the weaponization of grievance. Mm-hmm. He took Russians who felt left out by the modern world, who, who missed the, the glory of the old Soviet Union. I mean, his slogan was make Russia great again. Right. Sounds by the familiar. way, yes, yeah. sounds familiar. ISIS's slogan basically was you Sunni Muslims are left out by the modern world. You have terrible leaders, which they do. Um, I'm coming along and what are we gonna do? We're gonna make Islam great again. Same slogan, same weaponization of grievance, same exact thing that Trump did.
0: So as a former journalist, um, what do you think about the role that, that mainstream media is playing back when you were in office or when you had this position and also in current day, just in combating the disinformation that we're seeing everywhere?
1: You know, I, I, you're in that, in the business. I am. And I actually remember cutting this. I had a riff in the book about how we shouldn't use verbs like combating disinformation, you use, you know, uh, truculent fighting language, which is what we do about everything. I said in government that people in government, you know, the, the, the idea of combating something, if they put the word counter in front of it, they think they're combating it, like counterterrorism. And like, I started a counterterrorism group. Great. Um, so, I, I, I think there's no, the problem is there's no combating it, this combating falsehood with truth, but that's not really combating disinformation. And so, I actually don't think that journalists can do anything other than to try to be as accurate and truthful as possible. And I talk in the book about what I think journal, journalism should become much more transparent so people see how it's put together. The disinformationists can't be transparent because they're just lies and they're making them up. You know, journalists should, here's the text of my interview. Here's the research I did. You know, one reason they were faster than us is that it's much easier to tell a lie very quickly than to tell something that's, that's truthful and factual. So um, it's a longer discussion, which we can also get to about things that can be done. But I think, I think for journalism, both being accurate and telling the truth, exposing disinformation, which is a fine thing. I mean, there were actually a lot of good stories in 2016 about the Internet Research Agency, which is this uh, troll farm in St. Petersburg, Russia, that was really the source of so much of the disinformation during the campaign and these made-up news sites and Tennessee GOP and organizing Trump rallies in, in, in Palm Beach and, and Houston. Um, I mean, exposing that is a good thing for, for, for journalists to do, but I don't think there's a meta thing that, that, that journalists can do to combat disinformation.
0: And how do, you think, uh, how do you think your former colleagues are doing right now?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I am not a journalist, but I play one on TV. So um, what bothered me during the campaign in 2016 was the, the normatization of Donald Trump. Uh, I remember when... Early on when Huffington Post said, we're going to cover the campaign, but we're going to cover Trump in the, you know, the entertainment section. And I thought, good, I don't have a great solution, but, to, but even covering the way you cover conventional candidates did him an enormous service. And as I say in the book, CNN did a whole lot more to elect Donald Trump than the Russians did by presenting him every night as a candidate on television like he was a, like he was a real candidate for president. So the thing that also pains me now is the covering of the campaign in the kind the usual horse race boxing opponent style. It's like, I mean, I remember when I was editor of time, I said, don't bring me a flipping picture of the two guys duking it out. Like, I mean, what is it? 1890. So, but yet we're still doing that same kind of stuff. How many magazine covers will have that boxing metaphor when there are two candidates, you know, so, so I, I feel like horse race coverage does him a benefit. It does a disservice to voters, right? Because you're not really explaining things or, or telling them about what's important. So I, 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 that does, that, that, that bothers me, you know, I wish you could have the democratic primary without any coverage at all. Like talking to voters, that is what, what, that's what campaigning is, right? Voters will decide, um, Regardless of what we do or don't do.
0: Well, you also make a point that, um, we have this idea that balance is saying what somebody says and then saying what the other person yeah. says. Yeah. And, and that's really, it becomes very difficult when you know that what the other person is saying is not truthful. Yes. And yet, he's the president of the United States, and, and, and I think everybody feels a responsibility to say, well, he says, um, in San Francisco, he, he says needles from heroin addicts are flowing to the ocean. It's just not true. But everybody repeated that as if it was. So the disinformation gets out there yes. anyway. And how do you how should everybody try to combat that either as a viewer or a reader or as a journalist?
1: No, it's a it's a hard problem. And uh, and the bad guys, the disinformationists use the journalistic bias towards fairness against us. It's sort of. I, I spent a fair amount of time watching Russia today when I was in the state department and, and literally they would have somebody who would come on and say, you know, the moon is made out of green cheese and claim to be a physicist at some university you never heard of. And then they would have someone on a physicist saying, well, the moon is not made out of green cheese. Well, that is, that's, that uses our bias towards fairness against us. I used to say to foreign service officers, there aren't two sides to a lie, right? So presenting the lie and then refuting it is also is, does a disservice to the reader because of all these cognitive biases. We have something called belief echoes. When you, no matter how, even if the instant someone tells you the, a lie and then it's refuted, that lie stays embedded in your consciousness. And if it's repeated over and over, you know part of the thing that all social science shows is that, some, that, some, that, that repetition breeds familiarity and familiarity breeds a sense of that's the truth. Our brains don't know how to process that. So... Again, it's a hard problem. I mean, I would say, um, you know, I would say, I, I mean, again, if I were covering it, I would say, don't quote Donald Trump saying needles are in the bay. Just simply refute this idea, which he, you know, said, uh, because I, then, it, then you're giving balance to the, to the wrong thing, even by just saying, by, re, by refuting it. Again, it's a hard problem. I don't have a good solution and you deal with it every day.
0: It, it is a hard problem. And what in, in the book, one of the solutions that some people suggest is a good idea is even more government-funded media to put more accurate information out there. And you mentioned Voice of Voice of America. What are your thoughts about government-funded media? You know,
1: I... I um,
0: $800 million is a lot of money. I would like to have that much in my yes, budget. <laughs> yes.
1: You know, it's funny. The other thing I talk a little bit about is how people in government don't understand the size of the budgets that they have. I remember when when I came into government and people would say, hey, you just ran this big international organization, and now you have, this was my budget at the State Department, $1.1 billion a year. And they say, you come in from running this big international organization, and this must seem like small potatoes to you. My budget at Time Magazine was $80 million a year. It seemed like the most vast sum of money ever conceived – and by the way, in government, that's a relatively small number. And by the way, in the Defense Department, that's an asterisk. Anything under a billion dollars, they they don't they barely even break down. So um, I've forgotten what the question is.
0: <laughs> I I just have dollar signs in my head too. Yeah. Uh, government funded media yes, is it a role for government?
1: Media. So I um, I I'm very ambivalent about government funded media and. Ambivalent is sort of a kind word. I, I don't think it's a great idea. I think there are people who do care what the U S government thinks about things. And we should, we should have spokespeople. We should do, you know, announcements and releases. Pe- government people give speeches, but the idea of government creating content is a bad idea. There's a, there's a reason we in America never have had, and hopefully never will have an information ministry. We don't believe in that. And what I, do think is healthy is government as a kind of aggregator, at least internationally, of the media that we do create. You know, uh, the Chronicle, the New York Times, ABC News, NBC. So people see that hey, we we have conflicts here. We cover our own flaws. We have disagreements. We are we are you know we're uh, we cover the president of the United States critically. I have a joke in the book, by the way. <laughs> One of jokes. So, uh, where the jokes, where my public affairs officer in Moscow said, there's a joke going around Moscow. I said, what is it? He said, "He said, um, uh, this Russian and Americans talking, and they're talking about press freedom. And the American says, I can go stand in front of the White House and say, down with Barack Obama. And the Russian guy says, well, I can go stand in front of the Kremlin and say, down with Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think governments, I mean, government, it's not that people don't like creating content. They're not good at creating content. And anybody, anybody who's a good writer, a good filmmaker, or a good graphic designer going into government, I don't think so. I mean, not, not, which is not to say that they have, don't have some good people. So, so to me, I would, I would get out of the business, or mostly out of the business of, of government creating content. In part because the people we're trying to persuade who are skeptical of us, will be even more skeptical when they see government content, right? Like, I, I think the U.S. is in the propaganda business. Oh, here's an example. So it's kind of a, it's a little bit of like shooting ourselves in the foot.
0: But if the, if the strategy is amplifying the media that we do have, and we already know that uh, media literacy is so bad, even in America, how do you think that would be perceived abroad? Do you think people have an, enough of an understanding of they're all saying something different and that's a good thing?
1: I don't know. And I do think that, um, that, uh, you know, I talk about the first amendment being an outlier. Uh, I, 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 think, you know, very sophisticated societies understand critical thinking and, 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 and the criticism of government. A, a lot of other societies don't. And, um, uh, I still think the best thing is for, to let people see what we do, uh, and, and, and monitor that. And, and I actually tell the story in the book, um, the whole point about about government media in the Cold War was about the scarcity of information behind the Iron Curtain. There it was, you know, Russians couldn't get American media. Russians couldn't read the New York Times or the Washington Post. Well, you know what? You can go to Moscow now and you're a Russian or American. You can read the New York Times on your phone in Moscow. So it's not about scarcity anymore. Um, I, I think it's about about People seeing what we do. I, I tell I the story in the book that when I traveled around, I spent a lot of time in the Baltics, which are beautiful and wonderful countries, and always been, you know, they've been next to Russia for a thousand years. And they, they say, well, we, you guys don't even have a clue what Russian disinformation is compared to, to us. And then, and literally, foreign ministers would say to me, hey, um, how come we can't get Netflix here? <laughs> and I laughed like that. And I went around and, and I kept hearing it from people. And I came back to Washington. I thought, yeah, why can't they get Netflix? I mean, I couldn't even get American programming to those places in part because the, the markets were too small and, and, and it was too expensive for them. If they had Netflix, they could see all of this great content. Well, I don't know. Six months later, uh, Netflix announced that they were going into 140 new countries, including the Baltics. And I got calls from foreign ministers thanking me, Mr. Stengel. <laughs> that was so great. And I accepted the thanks. But, 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 but the point is, is Netflix is an incredibly wonderful, uh, engine of American soft power. It's a, it, it's a, it's a seriously good one, right? People can watch stuff. I mean, I used to, I used to think, let people watch House of Cards and think, these guys make this about themselves. The Russians don't make stories about corruption in the Kremlin. The Chinese don't make stories about the corruption in, in, the, uh, you know, in the executive ranks. So, I, I think, insofar as soft power won the, uh, uh, you know, was the thing that the reason the Berlin Wall fell, which I think it is, um, all of that stuff is a good thing. Netflix is a thousand times better than any government programming.
0: So the the other thing that uh, that you had a huge hand in in state was bringing Twitter to the State Department. Can you explain what hashtag diplomacy is? Uh,
1: what well, hashtag? It seems quaint now
0: to say Twitter is in government, but yeah, yes, yes.
1: It's, uh, yes. So um, I, again, when I went into government, I was a little surprised by how reticent people in government were, and you know, nobody wanted to do you know to be on Twitter, particularly. Um, It was the beginning of ambassadors creating videos for YouTube, introducing themselves. And I got every ambassador to do that and every ambassador to be on Twitter. Um, But um, I know it does seem quaint now, doesn't it? Uh, But when after the invasion of of Crimea, we started this kind of hashtag diplomacy idea, which is that people in in government, including the secretary of state, uh, would go on and and say and express support for Crimea and Ukraine using the the, I guess it was it was was it, it was hashtag something else. But it started being called hashtag diplomacy, and people made fun of it. You know, I mean, the journalists made fun of it. You know, and it was like I was thought like, I don't have you know bombs and missiles and bullets, but I have hashtags, and 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 that reaches a lot more people. And so um, I actually think in terms of content that government can do that, the more people actually see that people in government are human beings and there's, they, ref, and they reflect or try to execute policy. Um, I think that's a good thing. And I think we should, we should see more of it,
0: but in a decentralized way, not the state department responding to a terrorist. Yes. You're a bad guy. Or...
1: Yes. But people, in, people in government for good reasons uh, are reluctant to sort of go out on a limb But what I would always say is like, president has said this. The secretary of state has said this. I've said it. What's the risk for you to say it? But that people often still didn't want to do stuff.
0: Do you see that changing or getting worse? Getting getting more restrictive?
1: I do think, I mean, one of the, um, one of the things that the Trump presidency has done is obviously it's made the president of the United States much more accessible. Uh, you know, for, for, for Barack Obama to do a tweet, I can't tell you how, how many people agonized and polished it. And it had to be approved by the clearance process, the white house and all of this. It's like for one tweet and the tweet might've been, you know, happy, happy birthday, Michelle. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, it's uh, adopt a foster dog day or that kind of thing. and, and so, I think there'll never, probably ever, be a, a president again who's not more accessible on social media. Um, you know, maybe not as accessible as 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 uh, the present occupant. So I think that also will filter its way down. I think I think people will feel like, well, I, I need to do a little bit more of this too. It's not, you know, it it's what it means to be a public official. So I I think that's actually wouldn't be a terrible thing. So uh, earlier you
0: mentioned that Trump was very good at, at weaponizing grievances. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that?
1: You know, I remember when, um, uh, when Trump, you know, his, his uh, kind of noxious announcement speech where he called Mexicans rapists. And, and he did something that I turned out to be completely wrong about, but um, so you know, the phrase, the American century, it was coined by Henry Luce, who was the founder of time magazine. He actually wrote an essay about it in life magazine, not time magazine. Everyone thinks it, thinks it was time. And when I became editor of time in 2004, whatever it was, um, and you know, it, there was a, there was, you know, the economy became terrible in 2006 and seven and eight. And, and, you know, we, there were a lot of very negative stories in my boss was a uh, a wonderful, wonderful guy, the editor-in-chief of Time Inc. named named John Huey. And I said to him, we were looking at cover lines, and I said to him, John, I am not going to be the first editor of Time Magazine to pronounce the end of the American century. I said, that way lies disaster. And no person ever running for president, to use a political science term, has ever been a declinist who got up there and said, things are getting worse. No person has ever run for president and and, and done as Donald Trump did in his announcement speech and said, the American century is over. And But that did weaponize the grievance of people who felt, you know what, the American century is over for me. I got left out. I don't have that factory job anymore. I I can't afford to send my kid to college. Um, Genuine grievances that we shouldn't have in America— but he weaponized them by, by saying, you know what, it's all the fault of those elites and, and these other people. And by the way, uh, the elites do play, they are at fault in part for that. And I think government also is in fault because, because we didn't do enough for those people. Um, but he, he made it into something hateful, I think, as opposed to something positive.
0: And And why do you think that the, that the other side of the aisle, Democrats or anybody running for president right now, why do you think they have such a hard time combating that message? Is hope the antiseptic to these grievances or do, are are they just not doing a very good job of um, playing on the grievances too?
1: You know, every president it's good to be lucky when you're president, and, and, and lucky means inheriting a good economy as opposed to inheriting a bad economy. You know, Barack Obama inherited an economy on the cusp of a depression, and he spent the first four years really trying to make sure America didn't go into depression and just went into as mild a recession as possible. Donald Trump has inherited the, the, the upswing Barack Obama economy. He inherited an economy that was. Had under 5% unemployment. And of course, you know, it's like the Aesop's fable. He's like the fly on the back of the chariot who thinks, look at all the dust I'm kicking up. You know, he thinks that he's responsible for that. Um, and he's not. So he's been lucky to get a, a, a positive economy. I think we've done as a country, um, uh, I'm gonna use it for, when I was editor of Time, uh, I, I don't know if there's a single more boring phrase that I'm about to use, and I used to always suggest it. And one of the nice things about journalism is it's very horizontal, right? Anybody can tell you you're wrong, wrong, yeah. <laughs> full of it. And I would always go, let's do a story about why we need an industrial policy in America. And people would start laughing, industrial policy, ha, ha, so ha. But the Europeans have industrial policies. Germany had industrial policy. The reason Germany is a successful economy is that they saw that the people working in the buggy whip factory... We're going to lose their jobs pretty soon, and maybe we should turn them into auto workers. And And those, those countries where there is a kind of much more of a helping hand, we, we, we need an industrial policy. I mean, it would be incredibly boring to read an article about it, but we've done a poor job of transitioning people. And again, part of it is this American idea of the kind of sink or swim and and, um, and kind of combative capitalism. But we need a different form of capitalism in, in the country for, for those people who have been left out.
0: Let's, let's change to one of my favorite topics, which is social media. Um, what,
1: what? Don't talk to this woman. Yeah, hey,
0: I, 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 all my journalistic okay. bias goes out the yes, window when I, I think about, I, uh, I'm trying Facebook, to be careful about
1: what I said I say anything. You're good about more Facebook. careful
0: than I am, I think. Um, I mean, what, uh, what do you think about Facebook right now?
1: So um, I, I do talk in the book, as you noted, Facebook, I enlisted all the, the, the Silicon Valley companies, not just me and the White House, too, of course, to help in this counter ISIS messaging effort, um, take down the violent content. And they did a really good job, um, Facebook in particular, but Google, YouTube, Twitter, um, I mean, they took down, I mean, Twitter took down millions of handles and tweets. You know, Facebook removed hundreds of thousands of pages and, and violent content. They hired Arabic speakers. They, they learned about it. They obviously didn't do such a good job with the Russian stuff. And I'm still, I still don't know the answer of how much they knew and how much they didn't know. Because it was hidden in plain sight. Remember, they, I don't think they anticipated that a bunch of uh, young Russian people with laptops in St. Petersburg would create websites called Blacktivist to motivate, you know, uh, or demotivate black voters or Tennessee GOP pretending to be Republican women in Tennessee or uh, Heart of Texas uh, to criticize you know, they, they created a site called Heart of Texas that organized a demonstration in Houston against the Islamification of Texas. People in, in, in St. Petersburg, Russia did that. They created a... It's in the, in the first Mueller indictment. It's kind of an incredible thing, and he didn't put it in the report, and I don't know why, that the Internet Research Agency organized an anti-Hillary demonstration in Palm Beach, Florida, where these guys in St. Petersburg arranged to rent a flatbed truck and hire an actress to portray Hillary Clinton behind bars on the back of the flatbed truck at that demonstration in Palm Beach. That seems like collusion to me, doesn't it? When the Trump campaign worked with that. So, um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I think they missed a lot. And I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They missed a lot. I think part of the problem, though, too, is all of these platforms depend on virality. They're, what they optimize is something that goes viral. They don't optimize for the truth or accuracy. So, so, so part of they contributed to it either as Mueller said, wittingly or unwittingly. And, but they were witting about, hey, we, people are looking at it, we rise it to the top. I mean, I think Google also has a problem, and I talked about it even when I was, was editor, like, why on your algorithm aren't the people who created the original primary source story at the top? Instead, all these other people who are jumping on the bandwagon are 1 through 50, and I'm 51, and I broke the story. That ain't right either. Um, but the... You know, as you know, the, the bigger problem is that the law considers all the platform companies because of the Communications and Decency Act that helped create them, that they're not publishers. So that they're not liable for publishing false information the way you are every day. Every day you're, you're liable for publishing something false or defamatory or whatever. You have to worry about that every day. Facebook doesn't because they're not a publisher. But in fact, they're the biggest publisher in the history of the world that there's ever been. And they need to have more liability, not the same liability that you have because you have professional journalists and you're reading it, you're talking inside, you're reading those stories and vetting them, but they have to have liability for hate speech, for verifiably false information, for deep fakes, for stuff created by bots and non-humans. And I think the law has to change.
0: Well, recently Facebook uh, has announced that they're going to start um, having trusted news sources and in hopes of. I I would argue stemming some of this controversy. um, If you're a glass half full, maybe actually helping to solve this disinformation problem. And Breitbart news is one of those trusted sources. What,
1: I mean. So, so again, I, we, um, I don't know how you feel about it, but, and, um, but so for example, I, I now I'm going to show what ancient history this is. So when I was running time.com, even before I ran time, our partner, which was owned by Time Warner, was AOL, right? And the AOLs, remember AOL? And, um, and they wanted to take my news stories and put them in the AOL, like Facebook is a walled garden, right? They never want people to link out outside of the wall of their garden. And they said, we'll take your stories and we'll put them up and it'll have millions of readers, and they would like take off the headline, the byline, the attribution. It's like, well, why do I want to give my story away to you? That's what Facebook did, right? With Insta stories or whatever it was that they did in 2015. It's like, I'll take that, you know, that good op-ed from the, from the Chronicle. And I'll, you know, I'll put it down in tiny print that no one can see that it came from the Chronicle. It'll have a lot more eyeballs, but you won't get any credit for it. And you won't get any revenue. What they're proposing now is better. You will get revenue. It, the, the, you, I think it will link to it outside. Um, you'll get credit for the story. That's way better than before. Is it just a tiny little droplet of water in the ocean? I don't know, but it is. It is better.
0: But is it solving the overall problem of people not knowing what truly accurate information
1: is, so that they can make informed decisions? Well, again, to to voice what Mark said when he. Zuckerberg when he was testifying and I thought this had resonance, whereas some things didn't. And it was a smart thing to say is, do you want Facebook deciding what is factual and not factual? It's a good question, right? But even what they're doing when they're doing these trusted news sources, they're saying this does have the Facebook seal of approval. It's a trusted news source, even Breitbart news. Um, So that, so they are making a decision about that. And part of the, 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 the silliness of the, these, these companies are not publishers is this idea of, you know, Oh, well they just have algorithms. They don't have editors. Algorithms are the biggest editors in human history. They're the fastest editors in human histories. Those are making editorial decisions every fraction of a second. So that doesn't, that shouldn't get them off the hook. So they are, they are, I mean, he, he undercuts what he says because he says two things at one time, uh, but the, because they are saying that this content is trustworthy, and anything that doesn't have that seal of approval is less trustworthy right that's an editor
0: yeah well, there's a question from the audience here. Um, what do you do about deep fakes and and I think you know those algorithms might help fix some of those yeah, problems.
1: so they have um, um, i mean the the things that and I'm not a technologist and but you but for example, they can tell. When something is created by a bot versus a human, um, they, they, they should also do these, what they're called digital signatures where, where any content created by one of these sources that would have its digital signature. So you can see the thing that's pretending to be that versus the thing that really is. Someone asked me the other day, is there any good use of a deep fake? And I, and I tried to think about it for a second and I thought the lion King seems pretty good. (laughs) No laughter. Um, but I, I, the more I thought about it, I thought there really isn't anything, at least in a news environment that is positive or trustworthy about a deep fake. So I actually think deep fakes should be removed. And, and remember the, the reason he, that Facebook didn't remove that, the Nancy Pelosi cheap fake as it's called, it wasn't a deep fake.
0: The, the video that made it seem like she was intoxicated yes. as well.
1: Part of the reason is, if they removed it, then people in Congress would go, oh, you're an editor after all. You remove, that's an editorial decision. Part of the reason, again, which has some validity, is this idea, and, and it re- reflects you know, 75 years of First Amendment law, that political speech is more privileged than regular speech, and that we give political speech the benefit of the doubt. And he said, look, you know, if a political candidate makes says something false in an ad, it's really the job of voters to to make that decision about whether it's false, whether it undermines his or her candidacy. I, I do think that's a valid thing to say, but I do think in this environment, I would say, and we're always dealing with competing equities, that the equity of truthfulness or, or factuality, I would argue trumps even the value of political speech. And I would say, you know what? Even political speech that has demonstrably false content should be taken off. But again, that's a deci- that's actually a decision the courts would would ultimately make. But if I were running Facebook or running one of these platforms, that would be the decision I would make.
0: I would have to agree with you. So, in, in the few minutes that we have left, I, 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 there are a lot of questions. Everybody wants to know what we can do to help make sure that we have accurate information, that disinformation doesn't permeate our democracy. And you have a lot of re- recommendations in the book. So what do you think should change about the status quo?
1: So the, the law needs to change to to make the platforms more liable, where they would take off this content, including taking off hate speech, which, which they actually say that they do. Um, you know, I, Again, I mentioned that this line that we don't have a fake news problem, we have a media literacy problem. I think a, that's a long-term solution that, that we should be teaching media literacy in the schools, that the platform companies should be paying for that. Um, but in the meantime, I think people need to get it just to get a better sense of... Um, and, even, and if you go to Facebook's Terms of Service, you'll see they do lay out the content they take off and don't. But I think people have to just get better at figuring out the, the sources of information and, and, and being able to discern fact from fiction, looking at the provenance of information, where it comes from. Uh, which which people don't do. Um, I have a bunch of others. Oh yeah, that the platform companies need to identify bots versus humans. I mean, you should know uh, wh- whether somebody's targeting you or sending you something that's is is a is a human being or a machine. The other thing is, and again, which they're doing more of, but I but I would ar- argue for kind of radical transparency. All of the platform companies now say that they, political ads will be more transparent. Uh, there, there is a bill called the Honest Ads Act that uh, Amy Klobuchar is one of the sponsors of. That Mitch McConnell won't bring to the to the floor. Um, did I hear a hiss there? I thought that sounded like hiss. So, but the idea that, that political ads should be transparent. Obviously, it's illegal for a foreign entity or a foreign individual to buy a political ad targeting the American election. Um, but you, but but political ads need to be completely, fully transparent. Who's buying it? How much they spent? Uh, Why you're targeted, right? Because actually it turns out that people who buy Nikes, you bought a pair of Nikes like Amy Klobuchar more than other candidates. That's why you're getting an Amy Klobuchar ad. You should you should know that. So um, that's also one of the things that needs to be done in time needs to be done yesterday.
0: When you talk about media literacy, you know, there's there's this huge problem, as you state, that people just want confirmation bias. They want content that will inform what they already believe. Are you optimistic that just teaching people what a legitimate news article is will overcome that?
1: I'm not optimistic. I mean, we're you know the prop the design flaw is human beings, right? That we we look for the stuff we agree with, and we we're biased against the stuff we disagree with. And if there were an algorithm that would present us with alternatives, that would be great. And people used to say that's what that's the serendipity of old media. Again, I don't buy that either. I don't. I wish I had a better answer of how to sort of teach media literacy overnight. I mean, maybe there's a, maybe all the platform companies should, I mean, one of the things that they should all work together around is saying, here are the 10 points that would make you a a more astute reader of the news. And that's a pretty easy thing to to figure out. Um, But, but, but nobody seems to be doing that. And part of the problem, you know, as I say in the book is that, you know, yes, disinformation will be solved when this happens, when no human being ever lies. And no human being ever believes that lie. Well, when will that happen? Not as long as the human beings are alive. And I, I don't say this in the book, but the more I've thought about it is the part of the problem is that technology is evolving very, very fast. Human beings are not evolving at all, as far as I can tell. And so, and so whatever those, you know, the, the primitive biases and things that we had, uh, you know, that... that You know, saved us from the cyber tooth. Tiger is being exploited by Facebook and Google and everybody else, and we're not evolving fast enough.
0: One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book is you have a very unvarnished view of the State Department itself and its its level of, let's say, um, technical acumen. One of the other things that you point out is the level of professionalism that you encountered at the State Department, particularly with the Foreign Service officers. So I'm wondering, um, were you surprised at the level the Foreign Service played in the current um, impeachment proceedings?
1: I'm I'm super, super proud of the Foreign Service and the role they've played. Um, Ambassador Yovanovitch, Ambassador uh, Taylor, uh, they testified to to the House uh, uh, Judiciary Committee even though their bosses, even though the secretary of state asked them not to answer those subpoenas. That's Those were truly heroic and patriotic things that they did. And, um, and I think if our democracy is saved, they will be, you know, they will, they will be heroes. And I, and I only, I only wish more people would do that. And I think more people will do that. Virtue is a virus too. And, and so it, it didn't surprise me. And I think, you know, the, the, the flaws of the, of the Foreign Service uh, are also their virtues and of, of people who really care and believe deeply in what they do that have spent their their life deserving their oath of office. Remember, when you're a Foreign Service officer or anybody who works in the federal government, you take an oath to oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, and you're working for the American people. I never knew when I was in the State Department whether a Foreign Service officer was a Republican or Democrat or a communist uh, like they accused the state department of being in the 1950s. Um, But so I, so I think they've been heroic and I, and I hope they will continue to be.
0: And do you think more people coming forward will help dispel or confirm this conspiracy theory of a, of a deep state within the government?
1: You know, again, part of the, you know, the dark genius of, of, of people on one side of creating these terms. I mean, the deep state is a powerful term and in a way, I think what's happening though is that the, these, these deep state, i.e., law abiding, uh, civil servants, uh, are deciding I have to come forward because this is, I took an oath to protect the Constitution. Call me the deep state or not. Maybe the deep state becomes a positive term instead of, instead of a negative term. But I have been, you know, one of the things that I always hated about that, the swamp idea, I mean, the people in the federal government, Ninety nine point nine percent of them are there for the right reasons. They're patriotic. They they feel like they're working for the American people. They're not working for a lot of money. Um, you know, the point the one, the, the one tenth of one percent part is Congress. I can't say the same thing about everybody in Congress. But and, and the idea that people that most people think Congress is the government. Congress is not the government. Congress is a tiny, tiny, tiny part of the government. The people, the civil servants who are working, getting government salaries from taxpayer money, are always trying to do the right thing. They don't always do the right thing, but they, they are always trying to do the right thing. So
0: we have time for one last question, and it's one from the audience that I just think is great. Uh, you must get this all the time. But if you were still at time, who would you select as the person of the year?
1: Well, you know, I, I, um, the other day I got an email from, uh, somebody I worked with at the, at the State Department and said, you know, you're not the editor of Time anymore. And I don't know if Time takes suggestions from the outside, but I would suggest that the, the State Department Foreign Service Officer of American Civil Servants who have come forward should be the pers- person of the year, the whistleblowers. And I sent it to the editor of Time. I thought that, that could do a lot worse than that than than making that person of the year.
0: Well, I think that's an excellent suggestion (laughs) and a great place to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you to Richard Stegel, the author of Information Wars, How We Lost the Global Battle Against Disinformation and What We Can Do About It. We would also like to remind our audience that copies of the book are available for purchase in the back room, and he will be happy to sign copies in just a few moments. I'm Audrey Cooper, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. How great did Audrey do? Thank you.
1: Thank you.